The Coaches Network. Hey guys, you're now listening to The Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Jeremy Snape. Good morning, Jeremy. How are you? Hi, Yas. Good to see you. Brilliant. Um, Jeremy, just uh, for the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with yourself and, and who you are and what you do, would you mind maybe just sharing a bit about, about that? Yeah, a bit of a varied background, really. I started as a professional cricketer, so for 19 years I was a journeyman pro, not the superstar, but uh, played in three county teams, Northants, Gloucestershire, really successful Gloucestershire side, and then a Leicester team that won some 2020s as well. So won about eight trophies, uh, had the chance to play for England 11 times, and uh, yeah, I was probably known for my innovative style. I was the world's slowest bowler, so not a great claim to fame. Uh, but I loved it, you know, and it taught me a huge amount about myself and my mindset. Some days I felt, you know, I was really strong and confident and I could dominate the opposition. And I did that. I got man of the match on my England debut. Uh, and then other days I felt like, you know, I was nervous. I felt, uh, you know, the pressure got to me before I even, you know, got off the team bus and played poorly. So I became fascinated about psychology Um and then I did a master's degree in sports psychology with a view to really trying to decode this stuff around mindset and turn it into a practical toolkit for elite performers. And, and that's, you know, been incredible, really. I, I um, worked with Shane Warne in the Indian Premier League when that started and we won the first tournament. Coached South Africa uh, cricket as they went from number four to number one in the world. Worked with the LMA in football, looking after the leadership development of the, the top guys there and also worked with Eddie Jones with England Rugby. So I've had a background in different sports and working with different coaches and performers. And then part of my job and my podcast through Sporting Edge is to sort of interview those people and, and capture the insights of these world-class thinkers and performers. And then I do a lot of consulting into coach education and also um, you know corporate companies as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty varied career, but I guess it all centers around trying to help people to think and perform at their best. And, and that's not always easy, especially when you get to the top of your field, because often, you know, we get on our own way and the pressure becomes a derailer. So we might make a nice clear plan on a flip chart somewhere, but it's often the pressure that uh, gets to us. And when we learn those strategies to be able to think clearly, then, you know, we're off to a good start. Amazing. There's a, there's a lot to unpack. There. There's loads of juices flowing for me. Um, first of all, you know, you talked there about your own journey and um, becoming fascinated with the mindset. What was, what was it about the mindset that really piqued your interest? When was the first time that you thought, you know, actually there's something going on here. I need to figure out what it is. Yeah, it's a good question. I was always curious about it because, you know, you get some players in a, you know, cricket dressing room that are either technically brilliant or really gifted in terms of their talent. And they, they seem to go through life reasonably easily. I, I found it a real struggle. And although I had a good career, it was a bit of a battle. And the battle was me against myself, really. You know, as much as I played against the best players in the world, often the biggest opponent was in my head. So there was a particular game playing for England and India with 120,000 people in the stadium. 
you know, England were desperate to win this game. The pressure was building up and I ran out Freddie Flintoff, our, our only hope of winning the game, which wasn't my smartest move. But I was left in this stadium, which was six times bigger than any sort of stadium I'd played in front of before. And I just had that massive negative voice in my head saying, you've really messed it up here. You can't win from this position. You, you know, the press are going to, you know, crucify you and stuff. And and actually, I was starting to think about the consequences of failure and forgot to watch the next ball. Uh, you know, and our brain does that. We start to think about self-preservation or the, you know, what, what's going to happen. So, you know, I, I did a master's degree then and, and started to learn more about sports psychology. This, this episode in India was back in sort of 2001. So sports psychology was big in the States, but not really in, in the UK. And you know, we might have team building sessions with a psychologist every pre-season, but it wasn't integrated as part of our coaching and, and sort of uh, skill development. And, and I just thought it was a massive opportunity because I was a bright, hardworking cricketer. And if I couldn't get it right, then, you know, everyone must need some kind of support. And, and as we've seen, I, I think, you know, psychology is the next, next frontier, really. I think we've had a decade of fitness, a decade of analytics, and now we need to start looking at things that we can't measure with a, um, you know, skin fold calipers or, or a, you know, a microchip in your shirt like Prozone, you know. So for me, that that sort of inner game is is critical. And it's been a real privilege to both play at the top level and understand it myself, because as I was going through my master's degree, I started to sort of deploy some of these strategies around focus and concentration under pressure and actually I hit the winning runs in a 2020 final which was incredibly tense uh, in one of the big tournaments in the UK and that was almost like redemption for me that that before that I was scattered panicked uh, my mind was cast forward and I was thinking about consequences yet when I'd learned these mental skills in that moment of winning this game I wasn't actually thinking about winning although I knew it was burning brightly and I could hear the crowd it was almost dulled down and I was focused on my own processes, my own breathing, my own instincts. And actually I played one of the best shots ever to win the game, you know, so I've felt it and seen it myself and then being able to coach people through that and see them thrive is, is a privilege really. And yeah, so I think we're all, we all get in our own way at, at, you know, at times in our career, whether it's sport or business or whatever. And I think if we can learn these mental skills, Mm. it's incredibly liberating definitely i guess the, the, the word that kind of really jumps out at me as you're talking through there is or well, the phrase is being present um and i think that that's that the real key thing that jumps out here it kind of for me even in my, in my own coaching I, I i agree with you in the sense that you know we're going through a, a transitional phase and we're kind of now going into that phase where at this yeah i think a cycle the psychological aspect of things is actually getting a lot more attention and it probably needs to be even more attention than it is is getting at the moment even though it is increasing gradually um to the point where even when i'm coaching with my players and my athletes and i'm often kind of got to a point where i'm no longer really talking about the technical stuff i'm no longer really talking about the tactical stuff i'm thinking right as an individual now can you be can you focus and be present can you pay attention to what's happening how you're feeling and not just physically but emotionally as you're going through whatever it is that you're going through. So if you're playing that pass, when you've found it to be a good or effective decision, what was you going through? What were the emotions you were feeling? How were you feeling physically? How did it feel, you know, literally physiologically? <laughs> what was it? What was that? What was that like? And I think it's, it, it's really 
I've certainly seen a very different um, result in the impact I've had with the players that I'm working with now with that approach. So I guess, you know, something you touched on earlier, you talk about, yeah, we, you know, there is this mindset piece and we all do have this uh, element of psychology within us, but we all react and do so in different ways. But also, like you said, you can't get the skin, skin for calibers and measure this. So, Although you can't measure it, how are you trying to measure it? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I don't think we're in that position yet. I mean, at, through Sporting Edge, we've actually developed a, a winning mindset profile and program. And, you know, there's sort of six key factors that we've seen. I think the elite performers definitely have, you know, a goal and a drive. It's almost like they can see their vision of where they want to get to in technical. They imagine that you know, what will people be saying about me when I'm on a, you know, Premier League squad or when I've won a gold medal or when I've lost this weight or when I've qualified with this degree, what will that make me feel like and what will others see me as? I think there's something at an identity level that they, it's not just setting a goal and leaving it there. Then I think they've got this ability to create a structure and a routine and a rhythm that brings in these high performance habits, you know, even the elite performers, their motivation uh, ebbs and flows. You know, they're not always going to be fizzing, getting out of bed to do the shuttle runs and the training. So, so there's a definitely a, a sort of a drive and a determination in there and a focus because you can't put all your energy into everything. You've got to split it down into the things that are going to make, make most difference. Uh, then I think there's this ability to perform under pressure we've spoken about, you know, being able to control your mind, being able to control your breathing, being able to control your physiology so that you can stay in the moment at those key points. Um, and there's probably something about learning as well. The, in, the people that I've interviewed and seen thrive at the top level are, no matter how good they are, they've got this humility and curiosity to see how good they can be. And they'll always take risks and try and innovate and, and move forward. And then I think all of that has got to be wrapped up in, in well-being, you know, this idea of looking after yourself and, and, you know, nutrition and hydration and sleep, the recovery aspects, I think, of our well-being are underplayed because we tend to focus on what's going to make me look good, what, what can I achieve during my working hours, what impact can I make, but actually if we're not recovering as hard as we're working, then, you know, we erode our ability to, to perform through the week and Friday ends up being half as good as Monday, but if we focus on our recovery, we can keep that sort of tempo going through the week. So those are some of the factors that I think, you know, give the winning mindset and, and, and it can be different for everyone. That's why I keep those factors quite broad because, you know, a, an executive going in to do a, a pitch to in, investors, uh, you know, a young footballer taking a penalty in a, a Euros final or, or a young mum taking the baby into town for the first day, they, they all you know, have those mental traps and, and sort of concerns. And I think if we can stay focused and have those sort of goals in place, then, then we can get through those days all the same. No, that's really interesting to hear. And I guess I want to come back to the first two facts. You talked about the, the identity profile and then the vision and the, and the goals that the, the athlete may have. I'm really curious to find out more about, is there... Are you measuring that from a perspective of what the athlete themselves or the individual themselves has been able to come up with or the outcome of that with the support of other people, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think, you know, it depends as we, we've obviously got a lot of different people listening uh, to this episode and, 
you know, if you're working at the junior level, then you're going to be much more directive, you're going to be much more prescriptive, and you're going to show people the model of what success looks like. And you need to be doing these things. You need to be sitting in these kind of profile bands to be a successful performer, whatever it is. So we're pretty much instructing them in how to go about it. Then at the elite level, it's much more about questioning and, and getting them to open up their awareness. And, and I think at the top level, we've got to give people an input, not in, only to the strategic goals, but also the tactical goals. So do you think this is possible for you this season? Do you, you know, what do you see? Get them to open up and see what they aspire to be, because that's where the motivation is going to come from. Who are their role models? Who inspires them? How do they play? You know, who do you want to be like? And then the second thing is, how are we going to build a plan, almost like a performance partnership with your coach to say, how can I help you to get there? I'm going to need to support you. I'm going to need to challenge you. But it's important that we <clears throat> both agree on this so that we can stick to it when times get tough. The challenge is, if I set all your goals for you and I tell you how to do it, when your motivation wanes or when you have a setback or when something doesn't work, you're going to say, well, that was his plan anyway. So we need to have that emotional sort of engagement in the plan to make it really successful in tough times. No, I think that's a really good point. And it, it just brings me back to um, a conversation I, I had a, a few months ago with Shaquille O'Neal. He talked about Phil Jackson and how impactful he was on his journey. And that time with the Lakers, Phil Jackson never really got involved too much when it came to game day. He just, you know, if there was a situation, he'd often, you know, the players would be left figure it out. Figure it out. We've done all. We've done all the work. We've had all these conversations. We've done all the the background work. But now you're in the situation. It's up to you to figure it out. And I think a, a really key thing what you just touched on there is the importance of I guess the person or the individual involved having a a sense of ownership around that development process. So that goal is not just I'm the coach. I'm setting it for you. Because at the end of the day, I need to know what you want to achieve from this as well as much as identify what I need you to achieve in order for us to get success together. If that makes sense. So I guess one of the things you touched on there, though, was find out what they see as a, as a, as the vision. Where what's their vision? Now, in some cases, would it be would it be fair to say that actually, as as much as it's, it's good about finding out what they want to see, um, it's also maybe like you said, they use the word challenge um, to maybe stretch their thinking around some of the things that they might be aware of they might be conscious of but they don't see as realistic outcomes for themselves if that if you if that makes sense so they might be seeing all right this is the vision that i've got but this is only the vision i've got because i've got a limiting belief that's stopping me from seeing that this vision could be more although i know more exists if that makes sense yeah i mean ultimately we we're all trying to grow awareness grow uh you know passion and hunger to chase down those improvements that's what we're all here to do as coaches uh, it it, <clears throat> it sort of we've got to challenge people in different ways some people you say they can't do it and they try and prove you're wrong and you knew that was what you were doing in the first place other people you say well he or she's doing it look how they do it I bet you know I bet you couldn't do that what they're doing because it shows that it's already been done because they're doing it and they then try and copy it in their own way or you say you know let's pick the three people who you think are most aspirational you know who do you want to be like you know I want to be like Lionel Messi or I want to be like you know whoever Tom Brady or whatever whichever sport you're in and and you pick out okay let's now get into let's break down their skills what do they do right well 
you know, his throw is absolutely incredible, right? Well, what's he doing? Well, his technique, his training, his strength, his balance, his decision-making, the space that he gets, those are the key things which allow Tom Brady to be exceptional. Okay, right. So there are six factors. Let's now work on those six factors. So we need to give you that space on the field. We need to review your decision-making. You need to slow down and feel like you've got that time. We're going to have a training program that gives you that balance and that power. And we're going to work with the accuracy of your throw or whatever it might be. So you've gone from this watching somebody on TV and thinking they're untouchable to breaking the components down into something that we can all, you know, if I'm two out of 10 compared to Tom Brady in terms of decision making, well, that's a developmental path. If I'm, you know, four out of 10 in, in terms of my strength and conditioning and, and balance, well, that's a development path. And if you're in a professional setup, you'll have an ologist looking after each of those paths. But even for a young athlete, we can say, you know, what's your communication like on the pitch out of 10? What's your movement into space like out of 10? You know, what's your leadership like on the pitch? What's your pass accuracy like out of 10? Well, at the moment, I think they're, you know, three, four. Okay, great. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to do some drills in training. So then, you know, what the, the worst thing we can do is get kids to rock up to training and they don't understand how what we're going to do in the next hour relates to, to my personal development and our team strategy. So this is where you say, you know, hey, Mark, you know, this is that thing we spoke about. This is that pack pass accuracy drill. I'm going to be looking at you in this next session, especially because this is one of your, you know, key drivers that we've spoken about. All of a sudden, they then tune into a different level. They know that's for them. But of course, their pass accuracy in the midfield gives you, you know, better possession of the ball and, and helps you to make transitions better. So, you know, I think just taking a step back away from the bibs and the cones and the, you know, drills to, to weave it into each individual's personal development plan before you go into each session. That's a really nice way of almost gluing them into that process of development. No, I think it's a, it's a great point. I guess just on that then, you talk about obviously identifying maybe some of those areas you've, you've identified, you've broken down those components. We use Tom Brady as an example there. Um, and I, I think it's a great way to look at it because often, you know, I, I mentioned off, off, off this, you know, some of the stuff that I do away from here is obviously coach education and working with coaches and on that aspect of things. And one of the biggest challenges I've uh, come across with, uh, certainly in the grassroots communities, is that the... I don't want to generalize, but maybe the, the, the lack of attention to detail and actually breaking those things down. So I remember, I, you know, I remember a particular instance where I had a learner who was on my course and he was explaining to me, right, I, I want, I want the team to press better. Okay, fine. So talk me through the situation. And he says, right, they were pressing, but they weren't pressing in the way that he wanted them to press. So I says, oh, well, what did you do about it? Because well, I told them they have to press properly. Okay, well, what, what does that look like? What does press properly mean? Do you, do you understand that if this is a bowl of, I don't know, spag bowl, what it took to create that spag bowl in the way it ended up looking? And if you can't understand how the process that it took to get to that spag bowl, how the hell can you tell someone else to get there? Because um, they don't even know what they're looking at, let alone you've got the picture of the spag bowl, but they haven't got that. So telling them press properly isn't going to change everything, but what you've just kind of described there into the breaking down those components is obviously going to be really key. But another, another bit of what you mentioned there was that getting their perspective and their perception of what those things are. So if, how is their communication? How is their leadership? And how is that? How, how much of that can we leave completely up to them in the sense that 
is it their perception and do we do you are you saying that then we can maybe throw in right okay well have you that might be your perception of things but do we now get them to go to the point where they're actually having to bring rationale justification and, and, and evidence for their perspective if that makes sense <clears throat> yeah I, I think all the time we're trying to grow somebody's self-awareness so you know you may have somebody saying oh i think my leadership's eight out of ten and you go oh really okay mm-hmm. So one way of doing it is, you know, ask the other players around, what do you think of Mark's leadership on the pitch out of 10 and they'll score it three. So that's, you know, an interesting discussion. Um, And then you might say relative to Cristiano Ronaldo, how's your leadership? Are you still an eight? Uh, You know, and and it's the reference point you use that make them just think, well, maybe I'm not an eight and say, well, okay, so if, and again, this is where you can get into loads of detail. What does great leadership on the pitch look like? What are the five components of that or three components of that? Right, so where are you on each of those? Body language, communication, presence, you know, before the game, after the game, where are you? I didn't hear you say anything at half time, and you're an eight out of 10 leader. So, you, you, you know, you're just trying to chip away and give them a, a very realistic starting point. And your example about the press, you know, I was visualizing in my head as you were speaking, you know, you could show one of the best teams in the world a five-minute video of them pressing brilliantly. And mm. you just get the players to watch it and say, tell me what you see. We're going to watch this for five minutes. Let's get some key things. What do you actually see the players doing? Because mm. this is where we've got to move from theory to actually physical behaviours that we can measure. So then we say, right, I've seen them do these three things. And then we show some footage of them playing on Saturday in an amateur game. You know, we've got a dodgy bit of handicam footage on someone's iPhone or whatever. And we say, how does this relate? Oh, well, these guys weren't in a line. Okay, great. So that's the first thing. We've got to be in a line. How do we get in a line? Well, we need to be communicating and, you know, looking at the ball and then looking to the side. Okay, really? That's great. So why don't we do a drill that sets that up? And all of a sudden you've broken down this intangible, ethereal, aspirational thing of pressing brilliantly which is gobbledygook to most people because it's like when we're here in the corporate world we've got to be more agile what what does that what do you want me to do just walk into the office and change direction four times and unless you break it down into the actual behaviors and and show me what is it you know how do i behave to be agile how do i behave to press how do i behave to be a leader show me those things and then i've if i've got two or three key things not more than that because it's yeah. too confusing. And then say, so I'm going to watch you this Saturday, Mark, and I'm going to say, you know, how are you getting on with your leadership? Let's take you from a three out of 10 to a five out of 10 this week. Mm-hmm. And let's see, you tell me what you think and I'll tell you what I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I, I, even, you know, there's two key things that kind of come up for me. That, that piece around perception and, and reference um, at the right point where you talked about, right, you might be a three out of 10, but then now how are you in comparison to Boston? It's funny if I've actually used that type of uh, approach before where, I might have a session with a group of players and say, right, you know, based on what you've just done in the last 10, 15, 20 minutes, however, many, however much it's been, how would you rate your passing out of 10? And say, oh, yeah, it's, it's a six or seven. I'll say, all right, okay, six or seven. So, all right, what would take it to a, an eight or a nine then? Um, they start telling me some of these things and we do it again. And then they say, well, we've, we've done the things that we said we're going to do. So, are you telling me now that you're at an eight or a nine, are you? It's not. It's no right or wrong. It's just perception and it's just understanding of perspectives. And they say, yeah, we, we, you know, okay. Well, how do we get to a ten? And then this is where I kind of hit them with a bit more perspective and say, right. So you're saying now that if you did this, you'd be as good as Barcelona because we've maybe had a pre- prior conversation and said, well, Barcelona are a ten. So you're that close from being away from Barcelona, are you? 
And then I kind of just pegs them back. All right, now let's look back at where we started. Were you really a five or a six? Actually, probably not. We're probably about a three or a two. Okay, fine. There's, and there's nothing wrong with that because it's about developing the awareness. Like you said, it's about raising an understanding of, right, this is where we're actually starting from and this is where we're trying to end up. And then the second piece, you know, you, you talk there about the drills that we're going to develop for the players and develop for the athletes. In those, in those pieces there then, now this is a... a well, and in fact, before I get to that, you talked there about breaking down those components, having two or three things that we can kind of now focus on as tangible things. Now, the way in, in, when I work, I, I like to use this idea of the, these green light moments is what I, I like to refer to them as. And I almost like use like a traffic light system. Now, we've identified the things that are going to have an impact here. We're going to identify maybe some of the behaviors that we need to carry out. But now we need to assess and decide on when the right time is to apply them. So there's going to be some moments where, if I use the analogy of crossing a road, where actually the light's still green for the cars and it's not it's red for me. But if I do enough observation, I can check that it's probably still safe for me to cross that road. There's going to be other times that might not be the case. Now, if I'm behind the wheel now or, and that light is in front of me is green, I know that, okay, because it's green, it's a likelihood that it's going to go from a green to an amber. So I have to really prepare for the potential outcome of that and vice versa. Whereas if I approach the light at an amber, not knowing wherever it's come from, that gives me a different problem and different observations need to be made. So I guess you have to assess the risk factor of when these things have happened. So you've got the five minute video of this team press and we picked up some of the variables that they've, that they've, that we've observed, but the next step is right. Okay. Well, you've observed this can you tell me more about when this happened and get them to really develop a deeper understanding around that um and then i, I guess brings on to the next question around you talk about preparing the drills for the players and, and and practices for the players and this is something that i've kind of gone full circle on or i say full circle on but i've, I've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other one for when i first started coaching i wouldn't mind doing a lot of unopposed work and and stuff that I would consider that lacks lacks context to the to the real real situation. Whereas now a lot more of my stuff is not necessarily games, but even if I had to do an unopposed practice now, I'm very conscious about developing and understanding and building context for the athletes. So if we me and you could be passing back and forth over a 10 yard distance now, I might just say, right, there's no context there. So I might turn and say, right, Jeremy, um, I want you to imagine that you're, I don't know, you're a center forward, but there's a there's a as a center back on your left shoulder, I want you to receive as if that's the situation. A straight away, okay, still might be unopposed, but you've now got a different different picture in your mind as to what that looks like. Now, how much of that would you say is relevant, or would you say is actually more from your from your experience and observations that it's probably more beneficial just to keep it opposed? Well, I think. <laughs> Again, it's difficult to go into a specific sport and a specific skill, but I think what you're looking to do is get the awareness first. Mm. And what you're looking to do when we're asking them about, you know, how do you think your press is compared to Barcelona or something? We're not trying to shame them. Mm. We're just trying to get them to have a realistic starting point. And they will generally overscore themselves because, A, they don't want to look stupid and they don't want to, they want to, they think they're better than they are. Uh, and then the second reason they overscore themselves is because they they are fearful of making the mistakes in the development stage to get to eight out of 10. Mm. So they're worried about what you're going to do to them if they say they're three out of 10. Mm. So, so I think that tells you something about the way the training's got to be built up to say, 
okay, let's take that awareness onto the field now. So you, it may be that you start unopposed. You know, again, this is this sort of skill development hierarchy. Maybe that you start unopposed. You know, it may be that then you bring in your context of we're still unopposed, but now we've got some context. Mm. So in cricket, that might be okay. You've got this kind of bowler. Uh, you've got these many runs to win off the last over. You know, I'm still throwing at you. It's not a live game. It's the coach throwing balls. Um, but you now have a sort of an intensity level or a context or an area you're trying to hit it so that you, you've got a bit more game plan to it. And then you advance up to the next level, which is, you know, opposed and trying to replicate it there with all the movement and pressure, you know, and, and sort of banter that goes with, with that kind of situation. Uh, another example that sprung to mind is when I was coaching the South African cricket team. They are used to dry, hard, bouncy conditions in South Africa. And they came over to England in grey, drizzly, wet conditions. And, and for those who don't follow cricket, obviously, when the ball pitches on the floor uh, on a sort of slightly green grass wicket, it, it can really deviate. So they needed to get used to that very quickly. So the first test match of the series when they came over was really, really important. So we got to the first training ground at Headingley in Yorkshire. Uh, the guys got off the bus, they got changed, they went out onto the field, they did a few laps of the physio, they got into the nets and the fast bowlers started running in. Uh, they got a brand new ball, the batsman, the top batsman went into bat in the nets. And, and after two balls, I blew a whistle and sort of stopped the practice and said, OK, guys, just come in a second. Batsman bowlers, come on in. What have you learned? And they just looked at me as if I'd gone mad. They were just sort of, you know, getting their bodies loose, getting into it, getting a feel for it. And I said, well, you've had two balls. You know, you face two, the bowlers have bowled two balls. So you should know whether it's swinging or not, this particular ball that you've got, because they're all slightly different. You should know what the pitch is like in terms of speed and bounce and where you need to hit the pitch to be effective. And batsmen, you should know the pace of the pitch, whether the ball's swinging, what your movement patterns need to be like and what your game, what shots are on and what shots are off, you face two balls. And, and all, I, all I was really trying to do was an extreme example of, are you switched on in this practice? Are you really taking it in or are you just going through the motions and hoping that after 20 minutes of sort of mindless practice, you've improved as a player? So I think going back to that pressing situation, it may be, you know, we've just watched Barcelona. We've talked about it unopposed. We've talked about it one-to-one. You know, we've got into it, blow the whistle. Out of 10, how do you think we're getting on with those three things we spoke about? Communication, alignment and movement. Uh, we haven't moved really. We haven't been together. Okay, great. So let's stop and let's go again. You know, you're trying to bring that awareness onto the pitch and then build it up and obviously praise it when you see it. Because, you know, I've, I've worked in Premier League soccer teams where the, the sort of strategy meetings are, you know, the, the sort of uh, metal... Uh, magnets sort of sitting on the board you're going to move here you're going to press you're going to go out wide you're going to cut inside and it's all a bit confusing we go out on the pitch and it's almost like they, they can't visualize that again now so we need to bring that onto the pitch in terms of spatial awareness so I think building it up in those stages is the best way to do it and again you know we've got a big variation between what you can do with professional Premier League players and what you can do with under 12s you know juniors so I think that, you know, whoever's listening, you need to sort of scale that to, to whichever level, but awareness and getting the players to understand what you're saying, you know, slow down and get them to understand stage one and stage two first. Don't rush, rush them on showing them what Barcelona do and expect them to do. It's just not going to work. Everyone will get frustrated and you'll end up having to go back to basics anyway.
Mm. No, re- really interesting. That. And I think, you know, absolutely right. I think part, it's part of that winning mindset piece, self-awareness and awareness around not just stuff that's happening on the field or off the field. I think it's just as important. So I guess in addition to the awareness piece, what would you say are the other key components that really tie up and um, I guess a winning mindset is dependent on and, and from your from your experiences, is there any consistencies or, or inconsistencies that exist when it comes to elite sport? Or do you think actually, no, there's a set, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's loads. We could do hours talking about it. I mean, I've, I've spent, you know, 20 years exploring this, but I think one of the key things that every elite performer will have to face, and we've just seen it with England in the Euros, is setbacks. You know, we're going to have players that, that don't get picked. They're on the bench they get injured, uh, they miss a penalty, they fall out with a coach, they move clubs and it doesn't work. You know, there's going to be all these different setbacks in your career and in your life. And I think what we have to do is make sure that we process the setback effectively from a psychological point of view, because they're going to be key building blocks in the future, because we'll always look back at these memories. So if we've coded it as a catastrophic moment, then we'll never be able to move on from it. So the worst people after setbacks see this as all of me. I've gone from being a, you know, a a brilliant footballer to a crap bloke. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a rubbish person now because I missed that penalty. Mm. Uh, They see it as um, something that's fixed that can never be changed. That's just the way it is now. That's my identity. I'm a loser. Um, Whereas the people who are brilliant after setbacks say that was a specific skill. So the way I put the ball down, and the way I walked back to my mark after that, before I kicked the penalty, I wasn't even clear where I was going to kick it. I was not focused. I hadn't picked a target. So that's something that I can definitely do better, that skill. It's something that I can definitely practice and improve. So it's not fixed and it doesn't permeate into the rest of my life. I can still be a brilliant son, friend, husband, you know, daughter, whatever it might be. Just because I missed a penalty doesn't make me a bad person. So I think there's sort of three key elements there that that sort of specific time, specific skill and, um, you know, that ability to change and, and grow through life and learn from it is another key element of, of the winning mindset for sure. Definitely. And I think, again, the term that really kind of just jumps out at me as you're talking is what can you control? Focus on that. Focus on what you can control. You can't control what's happened. You can't control what people think about you. You can't control any of those things. What you can control is your mindset or your approach to things, your behaviors and your actions. Um, and, and I think that's key. So I guess, you know, just as we look to kind of wind down then, Jeremy, what would you say are some of the key things that coaches maybe listen to this or even potential athletes listening to this um, could do to start adopting more of a winning mindset? Um where, where, where do they start? What are some of the, maybe some of the questions that they start asking themselves to try to, I guess, get that ball rolling and yeah. see where we're on the right track? I think, I think we need to get people to see that they can always improve. You know, the, I've worked with some of the world's top performers and they're always looking to improve. You know, if you think you're going to stay at the top of your game by being the same player, you're mistaken because the better you get, the opposition are watching you. Or they're trying to expose all your weaknesses and limit your strengths. So you've got to keep adapting. So if you're going to be a top player for 10 years, you need to be 10 different players. So that's the mindset that we need. And as a coach, we probably need to be 10 different coaches over that period. So so innovation and and change are critical. So the key thing is, what do I need to do now to be successful? You know, where where am I heading? So there's that growth sort of pathway. 
then we need to take away the fear of failure. You know, you might get a little bit worse. You might have a few tough games. If we're playing out from the back, we might concede a goal, you know, in this period. But do we believe genuinely that this is the right way to play? Well, if it is, then we're going to commit to it over a six-week period and we're going to really train every day to make sure we get better. And if we see those improvements, let's make sure we're really positively reinforcing all the hard work that's gone in. So I suppose we're trying to praise character, uh, resilience, risk-taking, courage, you know, being open to feedback, being selfless in the team. Those are the kind of characteristics I'd love to praise rather than somebody scoring a screamer top left. You know, that, that's sort of an outcome that came from something that you may never be able to repeat again. But character, resilience, selflessness, great communication, being willing to try, being coachable. Those are all the things that I think if we coach those things and praise them and dial them up, we get a brilliant, fertile environment for everyone to thrive. And, and the rest of it takes care of itself. Amazing. And I, I, I think that's top. And I, I guess I, can, I definitely relate to some of those principles there in terms of the, the work I try and do with the athletes I work with. Um, Jeremy, I'm really conscious of time. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for obviously being with me this morning. I really enjoyed that. And I'm sure, there's, like you said, there's probably hours and hours of conversation that we could still have on these topics. Um, but for any of the listeners that maybe are interested in finding a little bit more about what we've discussed today or more about what you do, is there somewhere they can get in touch with you or, or get or to see that work? Yeah. Sure. The, the podcast is called Inside the Mind of Champions. That's five star rated on, on Apple. Um, and sportingedge.com is where our video library of the hundred experts that we've interviewed sit. So we've got a membership club there where everyone can join and have access to all the videos and, and insights that we've got from the world's best athletes and thought leaders. So yeah, we've got a great community there and more than happy to welcome some of your coaches from around the world into it. So yeah, sportingedge.com and inside the mind of champions is the podcast. Brilliant. And just a final question then for you, uh, just by sitting here having this conversation with me, you've made yourself part of the coaches network. Uh, what's the one key message that you want to leave with everyone? Make sure that the psychological element of what you coach is at the forefront, because without that, none of the technical and tactical elements that you'll you'll try and implement will work. If if people are fearful, feel like they're being judged, you know, then then they won't learn. Uh, we've got to make people feel safe. We've got to get them to understand the skill. We've got to give them the confidence to deploy those skills at the right time in the right way. If we do that, you'll transform the players you're working with. Amazing. Again, thank you very much for your time, Jeremy. I really appreciate that. Um, Thanks a lot. Cheers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.